0: Hello, y'all. Uh, my name is Simon Stokes, and I am the campus minister for RUF. Um, and if I had met you, I would love to meet you at some point. Um, and I just want to say, uh, I guess, a word on our our worship. Um, that I think our worship is awesome, and I love it. I love old hymns. Um, I love saying a confession every now and again. Um, and I think this is really important for us because like, the goal of... Worship is not just to like amp us up and make us feel like we 're on top of the world, but also to shape us and form us spiritually um, and What you need as much as anything else is the truth of god 's grace and the truth of god 's word and the truth that Christians have written down and have sung and prayed about and lived in for hundreds of years like some of these hymns were written like three, four five hundred years ago, and they 've been with god 's people all through those ages and helped people through terrible things through wonderful things, and it's a great pleasure to sing these things and be shaped by them, because like to endure through the long uh, years of your life, you need real truth as much as like a real emotional experience of God's grace as well. So that's my word on our worship. Um, so I was reading a story recently about a guy who was in Montana. He was a hunter. He was kind of scoping out um, some backwoods country for elk. And he comes across a mother grizzly and her cubs as he's scoping things out. And he says that he saw them from like 25 yards away. And he's like, uh oh. <laughs> no, this is a real story. <laughs> he sees them from like 25 yards away. He makes eye contact with the bear. And he freezes, and he sees that she sees them, and she starts to, starts to charge towards him. So he scrambles in his pack, he pulls out the bear mace, and he starts to spray it at her. Her momentum carries her through the mace, and she tackles him, and she starts to maul him. And she, he says that the force of for teeth was like getting hit with a sledgehammer with teeth. Uh, and he says, <laughs> really, really intense bear attack. Um, he says that after a few minutes though, she just kind of exhausts herself. He lays there kind of limp like kind of looking like is she going to do anything else. A few more minutes pass. He gets up. He starts to walk back to his truck which is like 3 miles away. And as he's walking he's thinking like, "Man, I can't believe I'm so lucky to survive this bear attack." And he hears as he's thinking that to him himself, "The bear <laughs> who's come back for more." And <laughs> I'm I'm betting if it was me, the last thing I'd think before this is like, "Why me?" Um she jumps on him and again. She bites through his forearm. Like his his hand goes limp. She's like shaking him. He's like limp, like a rag doll. And like she's like shaking him, shaking him, shaking him. Eventually, she just she gives up again. Like his he's not doing anything else. And he waits for a few more minutes. He gets up. He's like, oh man, I cannot believe the serve another bear attack. He walks. <laughs> he walks forty five minutes back to his truck. Gets into his truck. Takes pictures of himself on his phone and posts them on Facebook <laughs> because you know, like pics or it didn't happen. <laughs> a real story. He drives himself twenty miles to the nearest hospital where he spends the next eight hours being stitched up by doctors. And the journalist who records this news story asked the chief of police who was kind of on site here, he says, What do you think about this? Like this is insane. And the guy just says one where he's like, This man is a warrior. Like a warrior. Like he's never been to combat. He was never in the military. You survived two bear attacks in like 15 minutes. You're a warrior. <laughs> you know? Look, if you really want to know what's inside of someone, don't, don't watch them. Don't pay attention to them on a good day. If you really want to know what's going on inside of someone and what they're really like, watch them on a bad day. Like watch somebody study for midterms. Watch somebody not get in to something they really wanted to get into. Look, when you read the Gospels, one of the really striking things about the Gospels is that there's almost nothing about Jesus' childhood. Like, there's nothing about him being 15 years old. There's almost nothing about him being 20. Like, where does Joseph go? Like, there are huge, huge chunks of Jesus' life that are just totally skipped over when you read the Gospels. But what's weird about them is that when you get down to the last, like, 24 hours of Jesus' life, like the passion, or the upper room discourse with the Last Supper. Like, time slows down. Like, you don't know what he's doing when he's 10 years old, but you know what happened at 9 o'clock in the morning on the day that Jesus crucified. And you know what happened at noon, and you know what happened at 3 o'clock. Like, why? Think about movies and stories that you've watched where, like, when there's intense scenes of action... Or there's something big in terms of character development that's happening. Like the movie slows down. The story stops and focuses on it. Because this is really, really, really important. And that's exactly what's happened here. The gospels skip over big chunks of Jesus' life and ministry. But now they're slowing down to show you something super important. And our problem can be as we read the gospels is that what we want to see is Jesus on our terms. Like, I'd love to know what was happening in Jesus' life when he was 10. I'd love to know how he dealt with Joseph leaving or dying. Like, I'd love to know, like, more things about his ministry. But we don't have that to satisfy our curiosity. But what we really need is to see Jesus on the terms that he sets, on the terms the Bible sets. And those terms show you Jesus on his worst day. Like, his worst day. Because that's how you see who someone it really is, and what they're really like. So I just have one point for tonight, but it's a long one. And it's this. Not super long, okay? <laughs> but it's one point. <laughs> what does this reveal about Jesus? Like, what does this story reveal about Jesus? So let's dive into this. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's the first thing you notice about Jesus here? It's his sorrow. He says it over and over again, I'm very sorrowful. The word that's used here is actually exceeding sorrow. Like great grief, intense pain, the sharpest, most intense distress, trouble, affliction. And he adds to that, even to death. Like, it just intensifies this already heightened foreboding that he's feeling. And it's not just sorrow, it's sorrow to death. Like, sorrow gushing to the brim of the worst thing you can experience. And he says, where does he feel that? Like, in his soul. The deepest part of him. The word troubled here, too, it's too weak for the verb that's actually used in the Greek. That That's more like bewildered, anxious, near panic. Like, for those of you who've had panic attacks you have a sense of what he's feeling here. Like Jesus is enduring intense fear coupled with intense sorrow, and it's almost paralyzing. The man feels like he's about to jump out of his skin. Mark's account of this uses a word that means amazed or awestruck, but it can't just be in wonder, like which we usually think about like I'm awestruck at the sight of that sunset or I'm awestruck at the sight of those mountains. But it's more like awestruck in horror or shock. Like, think about your reaction when you hear about another act of police brutality or death in police custody. Like, that sense of amazed shock of, again? Like, how is this happening? It's amazement, and it's this awful, sick feeling in one. Like, we get that glimpse of of emotion from the news about other people, but this is Jesus feeling that about himself. Like, what am I about to do? Notice, too, that he doesn't fall on his face, or he doesn't kneel, he falls on his face. He's throwing himself on the ground in prayer, like he's undone. And the people that he's brought with him, Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, like this is his inner circle of friends. He's got the other disciples, he has other followers, but these are the people that are closest to them. He's looking for some point of human contact to comfort him. He's bringing in his friends and saying, please don't let me endure this experience alone. Luke's gospel records that Jesus' sweat is rolling down him like great drops of blood. Like, the man is in torment. Okay, hold that in your head and think about the way that you normally see Jesus elsewhere. Like, read almost anywhere else in the gospels, and the man is unflappable. Like, this is a guy who's looked into the face of Satan and said, Be gone. Who's endured like 40 days of fasting. Who says of himself, Foxes have holes, birds there have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Like, he's not happy about it, but he's okay with being homeless and poor. Like, this guy is tough. Like, Jesus is someone that when you read about him... He possesses the deepest reserves of inner strength and serenity imaginable. But here he is on his face in a garden crying out to God. Like this should be really shocking to you. Especially because, you know, Christians and other really important people have gone to their death without nearly as much turmoil as Jesus has. Like Stephen in the book of Acts, uh, a book a little bit further on about church history, says it's the, he's the first Christian martyr. And it says that his face was like an angel as he's being stoned. Like the early church records martyrs and the rest of God's people going to their deaths singing hymns and praying and thanksgiving. And that's not just ancient history either. Um, there's a man in the 30s, 20s, 40s named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany and What's amazing about him is that he was actually teaching at a seminary in New York in the 1930s. And so he's, like, listening to jazz records. He's at Abyssinia Baptist Church in Harlem, like, doing all kinds of things that you wouldn't think, like, a white German dude would be doing in the 30s. And then he finds out from family and friends in Germany, like, what the Nazis are doing to the Christian church. And so he says, this isn't going to stand. He smuggles himself back into Nazi Germany when he's in America. Like smuggles himself back over there. And it's part of the bomb plot to blow up Hitler. Like have you ever seen the Tom Cruise movie Valkyrie? Like he was part of that. And so he gets rounded up with all the other people who were part of that plot. And he gets sent to a concentration camp. And like two or three days before that camp is liberated, he's hung. And the camp doctor, who didn't even know who he was, watches this whole thing unfold. And he says that he watched him take off his prison garb kneel and pray before he dies. And that he wrote, I was most deeply moved by the way that this unusually lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. Like, utterly serene. You don't see any of that serenity in Jesus here. And furthermore, think about if you're trying to convince people who are watching other Christians die that this is the guy to follow Like, he's not dying with nearly as much grace as those people. And the reason is this, is that Jesus' death is not like any other death. It's not like any other death. Like, I don't expect everyone here to think that Jesus is both God and man. Like, if you're here and you don't yet believe that, we're glad that you're with us. But the Gospels are always leading us in that direction. And what that means here is that what Jesus is dealing with in the garden is the beginning of torment, Like the beginning of someone who's partaken in the life of God. Father, Son, and Spirit together in perfect love and harmony. Someone who's always had communion, intimacy, union with these other two people. And then suddenly starts to feel the lines of that communication get cut. He's there and he's experiencing for the first time alienation from the people that he's experienced the most communion, intimacy, and friendship ever with. Like no father... No spirit, no pleasure, no purpose, no enjoyment. The loss of this heavenly smile that he's known for forever. Like he's walking into this garden and hell rather than heaven is opening up to him. I mean, think about it like this. If you or I were to lose a close friend, like that would be painful. If we were to lose a parent, that would be even more so. Like if I were to lose my wife or my child, that would be much more so. But the greater and closer and longer the love relationship is that we have, the more intense the pain of its loss. For Jesus, who has for eternity been deeply connected with the Father, this is the most painful and searing thing imaginable. Like there's this chasm opening up between them. And it's worse than that too. Because Jesus is experiencing not only the loss of God's pleasure, but he's starting to experience the presence of God's wrath. He's not starting to go from joy to nothing, but he's going from joy to pain. This is a foretaste of what's to come for him as he goes to the cross. That he's going to the garden to stand in front of the oven of God's wrath and feel its heat. Like he's still able to say Father as he prays. There's still a closeness there. But soon he knows that that cry is going to be more distant. Of My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That in the garden it's not yet the darkness of the cross. But it's Jesus passing under the shadow of the cross. And feeling what that will be. And deciding to go forward. Y'all The closest parallel we kind of have in the Bible is when Moses in the Old Testament meets God up on Mount Sinai. The Bible says this is so terrible that Moses trembles with fear. It's like a scene out of a movie, like thick clouds, fire, darkness, the earth is quaking. There's a trumpet being played by someone that Moses can't see. And God's voice is resounding like thunder. And He commands if even an animal touches this mountain, it's got to be stoned. Like for Moses it's this ultimate encounter with the God is infinite, eternal, awesome and utterly holy and it fills him with this kind of dread. What Jesus dreads here as he falls flat on his face in Gethsemane is an encounter with the holiness of God. There will be pain and he shrinks from that. There will be loneliness and his blood runs cold at it. There will be dying and death in the hard awful stone of the tomb. But more than that and he knows this more than that. There will be this separation from God. Take this cup from me. With all of his soul and all of his strength, this is what Jesus wants. He wants God's will to be different. Isn't there some other way? For him who's always eternally been blessed, what will the curse mean? Like the full price to ransom God's people, what will it mean for him? The full wrath of God calming down on His frail, naked body with all the fury of an atom bomb. What will that mean? For someone who knows so much more about God's wrath than us, who warns about it, who talks about it, who tells stories about it, but who's never experienced it himself personally, what will it mean? There's suffering here, but it's not yet a suffering they'll have to endure. It's not the full thing. Y'all, when you see someone tested, that's when you know what's in them. When you see them on their worst day, that's when you can say, I really know this person. This is Jesus' test. This is Him deciding, will He go through with it? Think about the way this affects how you see the necessity of asking God to accept you based upon Jesus. Like for people who are not yet Christians, for those of us who have always maybe thought of ourselves as Christians... If Jesus' prayer is, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And the answer is no. Then the cup that Jesus is talking about must be absolutely necessary. Okay, well, then what's that cup then? It's a reference to the Old Testament. In Ezekiel and Isaiah, the cup is this metaphor for God's wrath for sin. It's described as being full of horror and desolation. It's the essence of God's wrath falling down on people... And it's a wrath that ultimately those people have asked for. Like C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce puts it this way. If in this life you never say to God, Thy will be done. Then eventually God will say, Alright, then thy will be done. If you want freedom from God to do what you want to do. To say what you want to say. To go where you want to go. To act like you want to act. Then eventually God will give you that. And it will be terrible. It will be you and your sin and yourself forever forever cut away from God, from His mercy, from His compassion, only judgment on who you are and what you've done. And the fact that He's dealing with this on our behalf is why Jesus occupies a really different place in Christianity than like Buddha or Muhammad do in their respective religions. Because Jesus is not primarily the founder or the teacher of Christianity, though He is those things, but Jesus is the content of Christianity. And so his death isn't an accident. His death isn't martyrdom in the way that we think about it. But his death is the judgment of God upon sin. The will of the Father to save the world. The obedience of the Son to correspond with the Father's desire. You know, we can sometimes hear that Jesus is love, God the Father is wrath, or that the God of the Old Testament is wrath, the God of the New Testament is love. But when you read things like this, like, how do you reconcile that? Because the tension of the story that the Bible is telling is how can a holy, righteous God be in close communion with unholy, unrighteous people? And the answer is that the judge takes the place of the convicts and drinks the cup of wrath on their behalf. That the heart of the gospel story is that the son becomes a stranger to the father so that the father can welcome strangers as his sons and daughters. Okay, just think about how this affects how you understand suffering and hurt in the world. Whether that's in your life or just kind of as a concept up there. Think about how God actually must think about suffering if he's willing to suffer himself. Because there's an attitude that says up there, you know, joy and sorrow, good and bad, light and dark, those are necessary parts of the world. They're just one side or the other of the same coin. You can't have, without, have one without the other. Suffering is kind of an illusion. Or you have to know bad in order to know good. Like, don't tell that to Jesus here. Like, he's asking, like, don't let this happen. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Don't tell that to people who are crushed by deep injustice. You know, you got to know bad in order to know good. Or people in the eastern part of our state who lost their homes. You know, you wouldn't know how good you got it unless it's all taken away. Right? C.S. Lewis put it this way. When confronted with a cancer or a slum, someone with this attitude can say, if you could only see from the divine point of view, you'd realize that this also is God. The Christian replies, don't talk such nonsense. For Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, hot and cold, all the colors and taste, all the animals and vegetables, are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made. And God insists and insists very strongly and are putting them right again. He insists so strongly that he's willing to die to make it right. Otherwise, we could just write it all off and say, you know, this suffering is a good thing. It'll help you really appreciate what you've got. Like, if the gospel is true, your suffering matters. The suffering of the world matters. matters. If the gospel is true, then God so resolutely stands with His people that for our sake the Lord of joy became the man of sorrows. The one who knew everything, who dwelt securely in heaven, becomes perplexed and troubled. Y'all, being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to act like you're happy and full of joy all the time. That certainly was not what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ. And in a room this big, I know that every week there is someone whose life is falling apart. Like, there's just too many people here for that not to be the case. But guess what? Jesus' life fell apart too. And it didn't have to. But he let it happen so that he could know you and save you from the effects of sin and the misery of being a fallen person in a fallen world. Y'all, our hope as Christians is not that if we avoid bad things and pretend that only good things are happening to us, we'll be okay. Okay? Like, okay is not good enough for you. Jesus did not die so that you would just be okay. Our hope as Christians is that God can take even the worst things in your life and work them ultimately to our good. He can take your depression. He can take your eating disorder. He can take your sadness and your parents' divorce. He can take the fact that you never really felt loved by those parents. And He can work them ultimately to our good. That doesn't mean those things weren't evil. That means that we have a God who is wise enough and strong enough and compassionate enough to turn sorrows of t- tears of sorrow into tears of joy. That if He can take the worst thing in history, the death of His Son on a cross, and use it to save the world, why can't He take the horrible stuff that's happened to you and use that for good in your life, in the life of your friends, Why can't he do that? Like, y'all, this is Jesus starting to experience in the deepest core of who he is that the world is absolutely not the way it's supposed to be, and what it will cost him to fix it. And he's going ahead with it anyway. But just look at his prayer here. Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Look, Jesus has known his entire life that what God's will has been that his hour would come, that he'd be cut off for the sake of people who are covenant breakers. He's known that, and yet he stands in solidarity with all of us who've ever prayed to God to change something about our lives, and God hasn't done it. Like, he knows that. He knows that experience. I can think about, when I was in St. Louis, uh, or when Katie and I were in St. Louis, we were part of a church plant that was in the inner city. And... And along the way, in this church plant, we decided like we really wanted to get involved in you know the hard work of doing racial reconciliation in this neighborhood that was like forty percent white, sixty percent african American and we knew that to do that, like we needed an african American pastor and so we look around and there was a guy at our seminary who was a colonel in the in the army he'd been an army chaplain um he had a doctorate of ministry, he was a super gifted preacher. And so we, like, we're interviewing him to come on staff and like, be our head pastor for our church. And we're asking him, like, why do you want this job? You know, like a standard job interview question. And he just looks at us and with like tears in his eyes, he says, I want this job because I believe in what y'all are doing. And I'll never forget this. But he said, there are times in my life when I would crawl on my belly back to the black church, but the Lord won't have it. Like, this was a man who knew that for the sake of God's kingdom, he had to enter into something he re- was, that was really hard for him, like pastoring a white church with white people like me. And yet to answer God's call in his life, he had to do that. Like, for all of us who've ever prayed prayers, asking God to take something from us, to help us, to change something in our lives, and God hasn't answered it, like Jesus understands that, like y'all, one of the hardest commandments in the Bible is to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus, as God, has the right to command that. But as a man, he understands how hard that is too. That in his very soul, he's wrestled with the agony of of costly love and of giving costly love to fallen people in a fallen world. And for you and I, that can be a parent who's demanding and inconsistent in the way that they love us. That can be careless friends or roommates. When people are hard to love, our tendency is to write them off. Like, these people are too difficult, I'm too busy, she makes too many demands, he is loud and rude and obnoxious. But what do you miss out when you do that? The reality of the gospel of what Jesus has done for you. We need to bear one another's burdens just as Christ has borne us. And for a lot of us in this room, our greatest burden is us. Like What we need is other people to come alongside of us and bear us. And we need to be born as well. Like We spend most of our time looking for pleasure, seeking our own advantage, avoiding things that are uncomfortable. The reason you and I spend so much time on Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat is it's just easier to do that than live in the reality that most of us live in. But here... Look at Jesus. That he's offered the choice between avoiding suffering or walking into the furnace of God's wrath. That he doesn't have to go through with this. And he goes through with it. Like on our account, Jesus brings sorrow on himself. Our trouble becomes his trouble. For a moment, the whole of salvation hangs in the balance, in the free, unconstrained will of a guy. With the choice of facing something excruciating for other people and knowing that he could walk away. Just look at the emotions on display here. Fear, dread, bewilderment, awe. When we feel those things, we run. We drop the class, we quit the job, we cut off the person or the group of people. Jesus is the one person who can argue that he doesn't deserve this. That he allows himself to be made the ultimate victim. He has the power to stop this at any time, and he allows it to happen to him anyway. But he goes through with it. And in drinking the cup of God's wrath for you, What does he do? He hands you the cup of God's blessing. That just as Jesus drinks the cups of God's wrath all the way to the bottom, he hands you his cup. And he says, drink this and never stop. All of my joy, all of my honor, all of my obedience and beauty are yours. Not only are you beautiful in Jesus, but you're right with God through him. Always and forever. Like, how do you handle criticism and failure now? Do you ignore it? Do you run away from it? Do you wallow in it? If Jesus has really drunk our cup, and if Jesus has really given us his cup, then when we fail, we should not look to try to scramble and save face or reputation in front of others or ourselves. We should look at who he is and what he's done. Like If we really understand how God looks at us through Jesus, then we can take both approval and success in stride. If we understand this, we can handle failure. That if the cup didn't make him give up on us, then nothing will. Like if he had to drink the cup for us to make us right with him, then what does getting into medical school, what does getting into business school, what does getting into nursing school compare with him? Like get in or don't get in. If the gospel is true and all you have is Jesus, then you have enough. Look, this is the love and security that we've been looking for our whole life. This is the love that can't let you down. This is bulletproof, bomb-proof, flood-proof love. This is the love that hides behind all other loves and that we've sought out and needed and longed for and looked for. It's secure. It's stable. It's for you. And if you want it, it's yours. That Jesus has your cup, and he gives you his cup. Joy and blessing and security forever. And if you come back to RUF... For the rest of your time at UNC, if this is the one time you ever come here, I want you to leave with this, that Jesus takes the cup of sinners and he drinks it all the way to the bottom so that he can give us the cup of joy and blessing and God's love. And that's my offer to you now and forever. Let's pray. Father, you give us so much through Jesus. You give us his love. You give us his blessing. Give us His honor and His obedience. God, we we need that more than anything. We need that security. We need that hope. Help us to know that. Help us to rest in it. Help us to seek it out and find it. And it's one true source. It's one true fountain. It's one true abiding place in Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.